Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are making the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition comes from Schloss Elmau in the Bavarian Alps, where I've been attending a conference of the Munich Strategy Forum. That local music provided a backdrop to the evening meal. Alongside the festivities, the Munich Forum spent its time debating the future of the Western Alliance, the rise of China, and the future of Europe. This podcast will focus in particular on the tense relationship between France and Germany and how other European powers such as Britain, Russia and the European Union itself fit into this pattern. In one of the coffee breaks, I sat down with one of the delegates, Francesca Brandner. She's a rising star in Germany's Green Party and its spokesperson on European policy. She's also a member of the Franco-German Parliamentary Assembly. So I started by asking her about my impression that France and Germany are currently getting on very badly. Yeah, it's the worst I've seen. Uh, And there is frustration on both sides. There is a lot of misunderstandings happening. And you have the situation that Macron wants to change. He really believes in advancing Europe on a couple of issues, be it climate change, foreign policy, strengthening the Eurozone. And you have the German government, which basically believes defending the status quo is okay. And that is clashing. If you have one side who has not enough to have the status quo to defend it, we have to go ahead. And the other refuses to even go into discussion about how to change it and just doesn't reply. After two years, that gets you into big frustrations. Mm. And of course, Macron's qualifications of NATO didn't really help. I think he's right in terms of saying there's an existential crisis within NATO. I'm like denying it doesn't help anybody. But probably the the wording and the timing were not very helpful. But Germany's even refusing that there is a crisis. I don't believe that the status quo is actually still the status quo because everything around us changes. You have a a Trump that you cannot rely on as a transatlantic partner. You have a much more assertive China that is not just economically but also politically ambitious. You have Putin, Erdogan. So to pretend that you defending the status quo would be anything sufficient in this current world, for me, it's just a bit absurd. And so you clearly think that Germany should respond more positively to Macron. What would that mean in concrete terms? Because 
okay, I mean, the headline was NATO is brain dead, but what's he proposing or what should the Germans counter-propose to get things moving and create something more fitting for the current times? Mm. I think the best would be to do a bigger package deal to say there are some things that Germany wants, uh, for example, enlargement to open the negotiations with Albania and North Macedonia, which the French block so far. And on the other side, to say there are proposals by Macron, which are on the table, which are own German interests, like strengthening the euro and having a real fiscal German policy, investing in new technologies, going ahead with a real climate protection policy. So I think there could be a package that you do. We are having the negotiations now over the next seven-year EU budget, and it will become very concrete. Where does the money go? How much money will we be able to give? And I fundamentally believe that's in our interest to say we need to have a European digital policy. We need to have our own infrastructure. It's another big debate, by the way, between France and Germany on 5G and Huawei. And Macron has also talked about rapprochement with Russia. What, what do you think about that? Because, again, some German foreign policy people have said to me, well, we can understand why he says that, but we're sitting in Berlin, 80 kilometers from the Polish border. We have to be more conscious of Eastern Europe's concerns about that. How do you reconcile those positions? I'm also very skeptical about his move uh, towards Russia. I'm also not sure what he really is aiming at and how he actually wants to reconcile this with some other positions he's holding. I believe Germany could be the bridge builder, but the question is to where? Uh, uh, and, and as long as Germany just says it's the status quo, that's not an answer or where you can build a bridge towards. So I think the French position on NATO, on Russia, it's not a very surprising French positioning. For me, it's nothing in a way new. To be more reluctant on NATO and to have closer ties to Russia and to have a stronger European anchor on defense, I mean, that's what the French have been trying for 60 years. So that Germany is no longer able to reconcile this position with the East European security concerns, with the German transatlantic ties, etc. And that's what makes it more difficult. And Germany could pick that up and say, yes, we probably have to enter talks, but not without just taking the sanctions off the table without any conditioning, etc. That would be not a good move. And on the other side, you see the East Europeans and Baltic states, which are also not the monolithic bloc, like Orban, who is very happy to talk to Putin. So you have to be, I think they're very skillful in just to make sure that you don't leave them out. Uh, I think you will not have a foreign or security policy of the EU without the Eastern Europeans or the Baltic states. They need to be part of it. And Macron sometimes, I think, is underestimating that challenge. Mm. And again, that's a very traditional French position. I mean, one remembers Chirac telling the, Chirac the East Europeans yeah. should lost an opportunity yeah. to stay quiet, all yeah. of that. Yeah, so in that sense, you know, I wasn't really shocked or surprised when Macron was speaking like this. For me, he was like, yeah, that's the French position. <laughs> the only missing link is that Germany is no more capable of bridging. But even from a French point of view, it seems a bit self-defeating, because if they see Europe as this third weight in the world. They need Eastern Europe. They can't just kind of ignore them. Well, to be honest, Macron and his team have been traveling quite a lot now to these countries, so they're making an effort of reaching out, and that's what Chirac never did. So mm. that's quite different. Um, we will see what the results are, uh, but at least they're making that effort now. So let's see what comes out of it. And I hope that they will take those concerns into account and maybe develop French policy that is inclusive of Eastern European states.
I hope that Germany will become more active again and help to redefine how the European defense could look like. That also gives assurances to the Eastern Europeans and, and Baltic states. If they're defended by NATO, it's wonderful. But also if the Europeans would do it, that would be great too. They just don't want to be without protection. Uh, and that's, I think, a very valid demand that they have. They also know that Trump is maybe not the most reliant partner. So it's not as if they're saying unconditional, the only one for us is the US. And that's then a question for Germany, if we are ready to take that responsibility on. And you mentioned earlier that the East Europeans are conscious, as we all are, of Trump as a very unpredictable element in all of this. Now, it strikes me that you're quite Atlanticist, is, is that fair to say? But it's becoming a harder position to defend. You know, we wake up this morning and you see Trump's threatening huge tariffs on French goods. I know, it's been a hard place and I'm not defending Trump. I just say the US is more than Trump and I still firmly believe in this. And I haven't really given up the hope that we will have a new leadership, be it soon or a bit later. So, you know, I still believe that we have so much more in common. And yes, Trump is a real problem. And to a certain extent, some of his positions will probably be taken or continued in terms of asking the Europeans to do more by themselves, which in a way is correct. Mm -hmm. But it's sure we have to rely more on ourselves. So I think this will stay, but not this craziness of defining the Europeans as enemies or German cars as enemy or going after the French because they dare to tax their own big companies that don't pay taxes in the US even, like Trump helped them to pay even less. So I rather hope that this kind of American policy style will go away soon. Mm. But just to conclude, because a lot of the discussion was about where does Europe position itself at a moment when the US is increasingly in a confrontational mode with China. Mm. And, you know, on Huawei, you think that we should take a similar position to America. We shouldn't let Huawei in. But the temptation to just say, okay, we're going to be equidistant between the US and China rises when Trump treats mm. Europe as as much of a problem as China. You know, there's no equidistance for me. Let's be very clear. The one state is still a democracy, even if the president is a bit crazy. Um, <laughs> but the other state is an authoritarian state and what we've heard about the Uyghurs and that they're de facto in concentration camps. I and mean, that's for me two different kind of actors. So there's no equidistance. And I also wouldn't go into the entire Chinophobia that you have in part in the US now of making it the outright enemy. I think we have to be much clearer and less naive when it comes to their intentions and that we have to become more affirmative on human rights, on those you know, central values that we share with the Americans. But that we should for ourselves define where do we want to keep our own industrial basis for the new economy. And for me, the 5G debate is about security, but it's just as much about our economic industrial base, which I would like to keep also in Europe. And next to Huawei, you have European players, not American anymore. They are European, Ericsson and Nokia. And I think it would be a shame not to build them up uh, and to support them and say, you know, we do digitalization in a European way, safe for our citizens, safe for our companies. Um, we have those companies and we will build on them and build with them a European way of digitalization. And finally, I shouldn't forget the country I'm from, uh, where do you think and at what point does Britain fit into this picture? 
there's some talk here of a European Security Council, of, you know, the British being fitted into that with the French and the Germans. Could that work? Is it premature? I really hope that the British will find a consensus of, you know, at least some agreement on how to leave the EU soon uh, and that we will then be able to define the future relationship. And security should be one aspect of it, of course, but there is much more that we need to talk about in terms of a joint digital approach. I hope we will have joint discussions with the UK about this. And when it comes to the climate transition, I hope we will do this together with the UK. So my approach is a larger one. I really want to have as close a relationship as possible and on a fair and equal footing. I don't want the UK to become a competitor from the same continent to Europe. It you mean the, the Singapore on Thames idea? Yes. Yeah, and like, you, you know, some of the proposals on the table look very much like that. You know, the level playing field. Mm. Uh, what kind of standards do you keep if you want to import? How do we talk about our tax regime, etc.? So there are many open questions and the withdrawal agreement is very much in favor of the UK. Right? The Europeans whew, did make a lot of concessions to Johnson the last couple of days. So, you know, there are a lot of risks there for our companies, for our consumers. You're worried particularly about Northern Ireland, aren't you? Yeah, but it could be extended. I mean, like, you know, the Northern Ireland regime, it's for a German absurd in a way because you have this twisted de euro de facto distinction, which sort of was thought out for the imports coming from third countries or the UK towards the EU. But the question is, for example, what, what happens to exports? Which tariff will apply? So will the US, if they have tariffs again on EU, and then you export from Northern Ireland, they will not apply, but you can import your products from Northern Ireland to the EU freely. So that's a quite... Um, unfair competition. So Northern Ireland could become a sort of weird special economic zone. Yeah, totally. And, yeah. you know, we have in my constituency companies that say, oh, then let me put my headquarter to Belfast. You know, it will be terrible for tax income in my cities. But I could understand them because they will not have the tariffs applied by the US. So, you know, there are many questions open where we have to talk about the fair level playing field. Uh, and if we don't get that, I think the mood in Europe will be difficult to work together on the other issues. I think the British perspective sometimes to say, okay, we will dump you and, uh, and be highest economic competitor, go down with our social standards, our taxes, uh, and then want to do security policy together with you. I think that's a wrong perspective. Europe doesn't work like that. If you treat us badly in the economic uh, sphere and then hope that we will be just so happy to talk to you in the security field, I think that will not fly. Okay, well, that sets us up for an interesting year when uh, Johnson has to negotiate his trade agreement. So thank you very much, Francesca. Thank you. (laughs) That's all for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Review. Until next week, goodbye. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.